Well, good evening, everybody. We're going to be in Genesis 3 again, so if you have a Bible, turn there with me. One of my favorite things to read when I was in college uh, were the sermons of David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said this about our chapter that we're in tonight. He says, Genesis 3 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible because here we have a history of the world and at the same time all the main outlines of salvation. This one chapter summarizes it all for us. So the title of the message is Playing Hide and Seek with God. Our previous messages that we've been in in Genesis 3, we've looked at uh, Satan and his role in temptation. We've looked at Adam and Eve and their sin and their guilt and their attempt to cover their own guilt. Um, but I'm excited about our passage tonight because this message will be primarily about God. We're going to see the Almighty in his perfections or his attributes. And specifically, we're going to see for the first time how he relates to sinners. And so because of that, tonight our passage, um, our message is going to be very personal because we're all sinners in this room and everyone on planet Earth is a sinner. And we need to take the good news that we're going to see here tonight to them, the good news of Jesus Christ. So turn with me if you're not already there to Genesis 3. We'll start in verse 1, um, but our text tonight is going to be Verses 8 and 9. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us tonight. We know that it's authored by your Holy Spirit, and we know that only he can truly instruct us and apply it to our hearts. We ask for it and your blessing. In Christ's name, amen. So just to give a little bit of review and background of where we've already been, in Genesis 1 and 2, God, the self-existent creator, has brought all things into existence by the sheer power of his word. There is nothing that already existed other than him, and he brought it all to be. He created man, a unique creature, 
in his own image, to reflect his own holy character in a way that no other creature can. He placed Adam and Eve in a garden, the Garden of Eden, to work it and to eventually exercise dominion over all creation as his image bearers. And he put in that garden a tree. It was a tree that had fruit that they could not eat from. Now, he had provided many trees that they could eat from to provide and sustain them. But this one tree was put there to remind him that he is God and that they are not. And that though they are to exercise dominion over all of creation, that their rule is not ultimate, that God's authority is supreme even over them. And so he commanded them in chapter 2, 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so we came to the first verse of Genesis 3, and we saw the entrance of the serpent that we talked about as Satan. This is Satan. This is the devil, the adversary, the accuser. And he comes and poses a seemingly innocent yes or no question to the woman. Um, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's implying two things. He's implying first that God is not good, that he's stingy, that he's withholding from them something that they deserve, that they ought to be able to have for themselves. And he's also implying that God's clear commands are subject to human judgment, um, that they're not things to be obeyed, but they are things to be merely considered or evaluated and for us to be able to decide if we want to obey them or not. Those are the implications. And the woman gives a flawed answer. It seems like a decent answer, a noble answer, but it's flawed, and we looked at that, that she's uh, giving indications that she's wavering in her confidence in God's word, wavering in her submission to God's word. And in verse 4 and 5, we have a two-part lie of the serpent. Now, this is a lie that's under the surface of every sin. Every temptation to sin effectively has uh, these two things, um, kind of the promises that it makes us. You will not surely die. That's the first one. There will be no consequences to sin, no punishment, no judgment. Uh, You can disobey God and nothing will happen. The second part of this lie is your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now this is self-exaltation. This is not God-exaltation. This is not uh, the pursuit of God's glory. It's the pursuit of man's glory, of self-glory, self-exaltation self-autonomy, moral autonomy, that we can decide what's right and wrong for ourselves because we will know good and evil for ourselves apart from God. We will not have to uh, defer to an external moral standard, much less submit to one that's imposed on us by God. And so we saw that the woman, uh, she looked at the fruit, and she saw that there were three things about it that were attractive. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, it was beautiful, uh, and it was to be desired to make one wise. She's really believing that promise of the serpent, that this is going to make me wise, this is going to make me like God. And we looked at um, kind of a comparative passage, 1 John 2, 16, where it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And how Satan has never really changed his strategy. Because it works, and because we've always fall for it. Every time we sin, we're falling into one of those categories. 
And so she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So she's not only now a sinner, but a tempter. Um, and Adam, as the representative head of the whole human race, um, by his sin, plunges all of his descendants into sin, corruption, guilt, and eventually death. Verse 7, the eyes of both were open. So in some sense, uh, it appears that what the serpent said was true, that their eyes would be open. He did, in fact, say that. But it wasn't as they expected. What it means is that they knew they were guilty. Their eyes were opened. They knew good and evil, but not in the way that was implied to them. They knew evil by experience uh, versus God who knows it only as uh, an external observer. He knows it because of who he is in his own pure, holy character. He can see evil for what it truly is versus we know it by experience. And that's where Adam and Eve are right now. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So now that they have this guilt, they need to cover it um, because they know that this is not going to be compatible with a holy God. So they need to, they're trying to find some solution to their sin, some solution to their guilt. And so in our passage, we see them trying to do that again, and then we're going to see what God does. And so the main point that I want to give for our message tonight is that God is seeking sinners. If you're taking notes, God is seeking sinners. And we have a fairly simple outline tonight. It's just going to be a two-point outline. Man hiding and God seeking. Man hiding and God seeking. So we're starting off in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, before we look at what's here, I think it's just as important for us to consider what we don't find here. What we don't find. Two things that we don't find. First, we don't find God coming to them in wrath. We don't find God coming to them in wrath. So Adam and Eve, as they've eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, They've despised his generosity, they've questioned his holy, holy character, and attempted to exalt themselves to his level. This is the, the man exaltation, human exaltation. So he would be perfectly just and justified to arrive in the garden with lightning and peals of thunder and blasting down every tree in righteous anger. But he doesn't do that. And neither do we find him immediately rendering a guilty verdict and executing divine justice right there on the spot, the moment they sin, because God did warn them, warn them that, in fact, disobedience would come with death. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what they deserve. But God doesn't do that. What does he do? He approaches them. He approaches them. Now, our passage doesn't tell us exactly how God manifested himself physically. Uh, we can... Uh, infer that this could be a pre-incarnate Christ, that this is really Christ coming to them. It doesn't say exactly, but we know that somehow he did manifest himself physically because it, they heard the sound of him walking in the garden. They, re they were registering his approach to them. I think right off the bat we just see what a merciful God he is. Um, he's a God of mercy. Louis Burkhoff defines mercy this way, the goodness or love of God to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of what they deserve. Irrespective of what they deserve. So multiple things are true. Now don't let me mislead you. He is most certainly a God of justice and a God of wrath and even a God of vengeance, as, uh, as Psalm 94 tells us very clearly. He is those things. 
and for all who die without ever putting their faith and their trust in Christ, who died to atone for the sins of the world, only divine judgment, wrath, and fury await them after this life. But when we bring the entire scope of Scripture and the full counsel of God to bear, we find that though God is righteous and just to punish sinners, which he will, this isn't what he delights in. It's not what he delights in. The Lord asks in Ezekiel 18, 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Verse 32 gives us the answer. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. So though his holy character demands that sin must be punished, God doesn't delight. It doesn't make him happy uh, to judge the ungodly. Micah 7.18 tells us that he delights in steadfast love. And even in the New Testament, we see the heart of God for the lost when Christ weeps over Jerusalem. Matthew 23.37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing Christ tells us the whole population of heaven rejoices over even one sinner that repents. God's heart is full of tender mercy and compassion towards sinners, desiring that they would repent and escape the judgment to come, the judgment that they deserve. Think even of the mercy and the patience that God shows towards sinners today. I work in a field where people are committed, devoted even, to using the name of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ in the absolute most blasphemous ways you can imagine. And I, sometimes I think to myself, or I, I pray to God, how much longer will you, will you tolerate this flagrant abuse of your name, of your holy name? But God is much more merciful and patient toward those who sin against him than I am. And it's in his mercy and his patience that he approaches Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And when they recognize God's approach, they feel an emotion that thus far they would never have experienced apart from the fall, fear. And to qualify that, this is, a, this is not the fear that reverences God, this is a fear that dreads God, that dreads a holy God. They become afraid because they know they've sinned, and we understand this, this is why uh, criminals will run from law enforcement and not to them, right? And the last time we talked about the conscience, which is the mechanism that God gave us to alert us of the rightness or wrongness of an action or a motive. It's the way that we evaluate morality and ethics. They know they've done something wrong and they're afraid. So what do they do? Second half of verse 8. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The sequence is simple. They sin. God approaches, they become afraid, they hide. And here, the subtle suggestions of the serpent are seen for the lies that they are. Here, the promise of God-like exaltation and wisdom and autonomy and freedom from all of God's burdensome impositions, here the promise of those things betrays them. Satan promised them that they would be like God, and now, having eaten, they're even less like God, desperately covering their nakedness and hiding from God. 
Here we see the outworking of the spiritual death and deadness in which they now exist. Their sin has separated them from God. There is, there is estrangement and alienation from the God that they are supposed to have fellowship with. There is brokenness in their relationship to him. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, describes sinners as alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. They are alienated from God, they are hostile in mind toward God, and they are doing evil deeds against God. This is where Adam and Eve are now. So why do they hide? Why do they hide? What are the reasons why they hide? Two reasons. First reason, they realize that their fig leaves were not going to cut it. In verse 7, they tried to cover their shame and their guilt by covering their naked bodies. And as they register God's approach, they sense that their guilt and their shame are still not covered. They're still exposed. And so they try to, hide, they try to solve their problem of sin themselves. They're their own solution. And they realize it doesn't work. So what do they do? They try some other way to solve it themselves. Uh, some of you are familiar with Einstein's definition of insanity, which is trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That, that happened for the first time here. So they try to solve it some other way themselves, and they hide. What's the second reason they do it? Confession and repentance are uncomfortable, even painful. We all know people, it may even be us, who are perfectly willing to say, I'm not a perfect person, but when confronted about any particular wrongdoing, they refuse to admit their guilt. Frankly, we don't like to admit that we're wrong to other people. How much less do we like to admit that we've sinned against a holy, holy, holy God and deserve eternal punishment? So realizing that they were still exposed and guilty and refusing to come clean to God, they hide. And there's only one way to describe their attempt to hide from God. Futility. Absolute futility. Just as the Lord God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the entire universe and the Garden of Eden, he is also the creator of all the particular trees in the Garden of Eden that they are trying to hide behind. These are God's trees, and this is God's house. Now, I could promise you that there are many things in my house I don't know where they are. I have no idea. Not so with God. God knows where everything is in his house. From the rest of the Bible, we know that God is spirit, that God is all-present, that he is all-seeing, that he is all-knowing. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Let's just look at the first 12 verses. First 12 verses. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, 
O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God is all-knowing and all-present. The seventh verse asks rhetorically, where can we flee from the presence of God? And the obvious answer is nowhere. Nowhere. There's nowhere in the entire created universe where God is not present in the fullness of his person. He is present in every far-flung corner of the galaxy, in every nook and cranny in the universe. He is everywhere. That is the omnipresence of God. But God is not also God is not just in all places, he is also beyond all places. God exists so far above and beyond all creation. He transcends the universe. He even transcends heaven. The Bible often talks about God being in heaven, but really this is to say that heaven is the place where God's glory and presence are most manifest. In reality, God has no environment. We have environments as finite creatures, we are in this fellowship hall on Grace Bible Church campus in Redwood City, in San Mateo County, in the Bay Area, in California, in the United States, on Earth, in the galaxy, in, it, in the universe. But God, the creator, in the totality of his being, surpasses all the boundaries of creation. He is both present in all places and at the same time beyond all places. Church, all of this is to say that the man and the woman are not hiding from God. All-seeing, all-present, all-knowing, there isn't one molecule, one atom, whose whereabouts are not known to God. There is nowhere for them to run to that God isn't already there. There's nowhere for them to hide behind that God cannot see. And what's true of the fig leaves is true of the trees of the garden. They are no more covered now than they were before. And what's true for Adam and Eve is also true for us. It's true for me, and it's true for you. Mark it down. If you can hear my voice, you can run, but you cannot hide from God. Now, for those who have put their faith and their trust in Christ and are following him, that is comforting for two reasons. Comforting for two reasons. First, in our relationship with God, we can be honest with him. We can be honest with him because he already sees and knows all things about us. We don't have to hide our sins. We don't have to delay in confession until we get ourselves cleaned up. Um, sometimes we feel like, you know, if we fall short in a certain area, oh, I, don't, I, I can't go to church until, well, I'll, I'll feel better in a week. I'll be better in a week and then I, I'll be able to go back. We don't have to do that. We don't have to do that even in our own individual lives before God. We can come to God and say, Lord, I've sinned. Please forgive me and apply the blood of my Savior to my sins. And 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. So we can be honest with our, with our God. Second, it's also comforting to know because that because God is in all places, sees all things, knows all things, we have confidence that even in the most painful of trials, that God is with us and that he will never leave us or forsake us. On the other hand, if you don't know God through his son, Jesus Christ, then this, shouldn't, this should be a little uncomfortable. It shouldn't be as comforting because God sees everything you do, is everywhere you go. Your sinful imaginations and your motives are in full view before him. This is a warning even for us Christians as well, by the way. And you will have to give an account for all of it. There is not a word you can utter under your breath. There is not a thing that you can do that God does not record. There is not even a thought in your imagination that God doesn't already see in full color HD. There are no trees that you can hide from God behind. And I just want to touch briefly on three ways people try to hide from God today. The trees that people generally tend to hide behind. Uh, this list is not exhaustive, it's just representative. Uh, there are many ways, but I think most ways can fall under these three. First is atheism. Simply denying the knowledge of God whom you know to exist, or to use the language of the New Testament, suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness won't make him go away. This is essentially hiding from God by turning your back to him, putting your fingers in your ears, and going blah, 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 I don't see you, I can't hear you, you don't exist. As if it actually made it true. Psalm 14 says, the fool in his heart says there is no God. You can't hide from God or escape the knowledge of him. Second way people try to hide from God is hedonism or pleasure seeking. Now people find pleasure in many things, but the idea is basically I'm gonna enjoy life, I'm gonna do the things I wanna do, I'm gonna make myself feel good, and get all the pleasure and enjoyment out of life because you know what? You only live once. You're in a fool's paradise if you're living like that. Because there is a day coming when the party will end and all the fleeting pleasures of this life will be over and their numbing effect on you will wear off and you will find yourself face to face with a holy God. The third and last way that people tend to hide from God, I think is the most popular way, if anyone can guess what that might be. Religion. Religion. The most popular way to hide from God is by hiding in plain sight with religion. In ceremony, ritual, good deeds. This is kind of like the um, you know, Waldo hiding right in plain sight in those large pictures, those large images, where there's so much going on, he's right in front of you. And he's just hiding there. You come to a place of worship, doesn't matter where. You learn the language of the worshipers. You participate in the rituals, but it's all external. It's all external. And if you're thinking to yourself, hey, I'm in church. That should be good enough for God. I mean, look at all these other people not going to church. God, I'm doing you a favor by being here. Listen to what God says to religious hypocrites in the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah 1. Isaiah chapter 1. This is the first of the prophetic books, at least in the order of our Bibles. Isaiah 1. Uh, go to verse 10. Verse 10 of Isaiah 1. Now, this is 
This is the Lord speaking to his own people. He is not addressing the nations outside of Israel. He's speaking to his own people. In fact, the kingdom of Judah, this, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. Verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. These things he instituted, by the way. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. He, he interrupts himself. He, he can't even continue this next sentence. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. These are people who are very religious, but they don't love God, they don't know God, and it shows in their lives. This is the equivalent today of uh, someone who might go to church out of some traditionalism on a Sunday, but then the rest of the days of the week they're living totally contrary lives. I'm not talking about believers who fall short. I'm talking about contrary lives to God. And God says to those people, as he does to his people Judah here, I am sick of all your phony religion while you live unrepentantly sinful lives. You cannot hide in plain sight from God. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ and turned from your sins, no church attendance, no baptism, no emotional experience, no generosity, no good personism, is going to conceal you or your guilt from God. You can not hide from the Lord. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? We've already seen the bad news of our sin, of our shame, of our guilt and are hiding from God, and now we come to the good news, and that good news is not that man has found a way to sufficiently cover himself, because he hasn't, nor is the good news that man has come out from behind the trees on his own initiative and said, Lord, I've sinned, have mercy on me, because he hasn't done that either. The good news is God, but the Lord God. Now let's park at that word for a moment, that first word, but. This is a word of contrast. It is taking what has already been said and contrasting it with what is about to be said. Here, it takes the pit of corruption and rebellion and estrangement that the couple has dug themselves into, and it is contrasting it with God's determination to do something about it. The problem that they've created is beyond all human remedy. God must act. And here he does. Now, this isn't the only or the last time that we've seen this word used in this way, is it? 
Turn in your New Testament to the but God passage. I know that many of you in this church know where that is. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. There's this old saying that all roads lead to London. And it seems for our purposes uh, at Grace Bible Church, all texts seem to lead back to Ephesians 2 because it's just such a mountain peak passage of the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together, together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the signature text on the grace of God, and it's this grace that's introduced to us for the first time in the Bible in Genesis 3. Now what we see here is not man initiating his own salvation, taking the first step toward God, turning his life around, making a decision for Christ. No, what we see is that God in love makes his move toward the undeserving. Sinners are undeserving of God's love, his mercy, his benevolence, his kindness, his pity. They're entirely deserving of his wrath, his anger, and his judgment. But that's what grace is. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. Burkhoff, again, grace is the free bestowal of kindness on one who has no claim to it. Or the unmerited love of God toward those who have forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. The Lord could have brought divine justice to bear on Adam, but instead, in grace, he calls out to him. Consider how personal this call is. Where are you? It's singular. God calls out to Adam as an individual. First, really, he holds Adam primarily responsible for what has happened. And I don't want to make too much about him calling out only to Adam as, as, as well, because there are implications for Eve also. Um, but he does call out to Adam individually. He doesn't say, everyone who's a sinner, come out. He says, where are you? It's personal and individual. Do you realize that this book is not concerned about ideas or theories or systems? It's concerned about you. This is God's word to you, for your soul, for your life. If you can hear my voice right now, God is speaking to you in his word, you. 
Don't you realize, if you have not come to Christ yet, that God has brought you through all the events of your life to bring you to this moment, to call you out of your hiding place, just as he called them out of their hiding places, that this moment he is seeking you out. He's asking where you are, not geographically, but in terms of your relationship to him. This is why God is calling out to Adam. The Almighty is not trying to ascertain the man's whereabouts. We've already considered he's all-present, all-seeing, all-knowing. There's nowhere for them to hide. This is the reason why. God is prompting a dialogue to draw them to confess and repent. He's giving them the opportunity to come clean. He's prompting a dialogue to draw them to confess and repent. That's the reason why God is calling out to Adam. In the same way, in the next chapter, he calls out to Cain, kind of the same way, asks Cain a question that he already knows the answer to. Where's your brother? Cain, many of us know, he killed his brother from unrighteous anger that was really directed primarily toward God, secondarily toward his brother out of jealousy. And God asks him, where is your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? God already knows the answer to that. He's drawing him to come. He's trying to get him to come clean with him. And here in Genesis 3, he's not driving them out of their hiding places. He's drawing them out graciously, patiently, winsomely. God's intentions for them are restorative and redemptive. This is the desire of God's heart, that sinners would return to him, that they would not continue down the path that leads ultimately to destruction, that they would come to their senses about their sinful condition and put their faith and their trust in the only remedy that God has given for it, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Before we close, I just want to read through a few passages that really drive home the main idea of our text that God is seeking sinners. Ezekiel 18, 23, we already read it. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Answer. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to, what? Seek, seek, and save the lost. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There is so much forgiveness available with God. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Matthew 9, 9-13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The almighty creator of all things did not call out to righteous people in the garden that day, but sinners. And today he's not seeking nice, polite, respectable people to sit in green chairs on a Sunday and live totally contrary lives the rest of the week. He's not even seeking bad people to make them good. He's seeking dead people to make them live. He's seeking fugitives to make them family. He's seeking rebels who are running and hiding from him and embracing them in Christ. There's only one type of person that God seeks, and that's a sinner. And so the question that God asked Adam is the question that remains today. Where are you? Where are you in your terms of your relationship to him? Have you realized that God has been so merciful, so patient with you, that your whole life he has put up with your sin and withheld the rage and the fury and the judgment that you deserve? Have you come to the end of all your hiding, all your running, and realized that there's nowhere for you to run to, nowhere for you to hide? Have you realized that it's the offer of redemption and restoration and the forgiveness of your sins, which are many, that you are running and hiding from? Praise the Lord, I'm confident that most of you have. And for those of you who have not, I beg you, I urge you, I plead with you, run to the Savior. I love this quote. I don't know who it's from. But there's so much truth in it that if you cover your sins, God will uncover them. But if you uncover your sins, then God will cover them with the blood of Christ. We're not there yet, but later on in this chapter, we see that God does cover them. There's a covering that can only come from God that is sufficient to cover your guilt. So turn away from your sin. Believe in Christ and Christ alone and find your hiding place in him. The only way to hide from God is to hide in God, and that's in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's so convicting, even us as believers. Sometimes we can, in our relationship with you, we have a relationship with you even, but sometimes we still hide. Lord, draw us from our hiding places. Remind us afresh of the abundant mercy and forgiveness that are available in Christ to all who would come to him. Lord, it's always with a sense of anticipation and, and mystery that we come to your word, even in passages that seem so familiar. But we believe what you say, that your word will not return to you void, but it will accomplish that for which you have purposed it. Lord, May it be so in our hearts tonight. For Christ's glory. Amen.